doesn't it, doesn't it irritate you when you get ripped off? Doesn't it make you boil inside when something about life just is downright unfair? Maybe you got cheated out of a large chunk of money that was coming to you. Perhaps it was a part of the family inheritance. And quite frankly, there's really nothing that you can do about it. Or maybe you play on the ball team, but you try to follow the team rules, and uh, there are others. In fact, the star on the team breaks the rules all the time, but you sit the bench while he gets all the accolades. Or maybe you're like uh, one of the many people at Grace who've, who've gone through a, a divorce, and oh, it's so unfair. You're... Your ex just really stuck it to you, and if we're just being honest, your alimony payments and your visitation rights are just so unfair. You remember that old country and western song that goes like this, she got the gold mine, I got the shaft? Well, hey, that's you. That's you. And it just stings. It just, it just hurts. Or maybe you spent all this time investing in a person at your workplace, and and hours and hours and months training a person and just about the time they were well trained ready to be truly productive they left and went with a competitor of yours or maybe you've tried to live a good life and really please God but you find out that although your heart aches for a child you you seem to be unable to bear children and there's a, there's a void inside, and you hurt to hold a child of your own in your arms. Friends, I want to tell you that if you live long enough, you're going to experience times when life just seems unfair. You're going to face some painful injustice. But here's the big question we all face when that happens. How determined are you? How determined are you to keep going and keep doing the right thing even when life is genuinely unfair? No one ever suffered more injustice than did Jesus. On the very night that he was betrayed, on the very last night of his life here on earth, he experienced cowardice and deceit and betrayal and backstabbing, he experienced a double cross and manipulation. And yet in spite of all that, he never once lost his own character. So as we're going to see today, Jesus actually went through a series of religious and political trials. And all of them were somewhat of a mockery. And a number of them, the people trying him, were actually breaking their own rules. The injustice of it all was unbelievable. But in spite of that, Jesus never compromised his character. He was utterly determined to fulfill the mission that he had come to the earth for in the first place, which he says in Luke. Luke's gospel was to seek and to save that which was lost. 
So we're going to walk through these verses today, and then at the end, I want to really personalize all of this, and I, I want us to see some lessons that we can apply when life truly seems unfair. So let's jump in and get started. First, I want you to see how Jesus endured the abuse of the Roman guards. I'm starting here in chapter 22 and verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. Now, who were these men? You see, Jesus was a prisoner. And they were Roman soldiers along with a smaller contingency of Jewish temple guards. And their job was to see that the prisoner did not get away. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Now get the picture of what's going on. The perfect son of God, who's done nothing wrong, has been blindfolded and is in this mob of soldiers here. And they know he has a reputation being a prophet. And so they hit him in the face and say, hey, now prophesy, who hit you? You should be able to pull that off, shouldn't you? Oh, you can't say? And then they would hit him again. Well, let's give you a second chance. And over and over again, this abuse continued. You know what I think? I think at that moment, there was a legion of angels in heaven who drew their swords. At a moment's notice, they were ready to wipe this planet off the map. There's an old song that says he could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. And that is true. Jesus was determined to accomplish the purpose for which he had come. Now, if we're followers of Christ, please know that we too are going to endure some mockery, probably some abuse of one level or another from others who are critiquing, criticizing, making fun, trying to make life hard. Now, I love to be a part of a, an environment and a work team where good-natured teasing can go on. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you have that in your workplace? Do you have some buddies, some friends, maybe some neighbors or longtime friends in your life where you can just kind of tease each other in a good-natured way? Our staff team had a wonderful Christmas party Friday night, and man, it was a blast. And I'm not sure, but I heard that uh, Santa Claus showed up and some elves. I don't know. It's just a rumor. I'm not sure about that. But uh, one thing they told me is that the Santa Claus had a southern accent. So... Uh, at any rate, ever since that time, I've been receiving good-natured teasing from the staff. All kinds of amazing comments. Oh, it was so much fun, that party. We have a very healthy staff culture. But Christians, are you listening to me? Well, I hope you have that kind of good-natured teasing and ribbing from friends you are going to go through seasons of life where, just like Jesus, you may be mocked or abused verbally by people who are downright mean-spirited. Jesus said, the servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Have you ever experienced that? 
Maybe a coworker saw you reading your Bible at a lunch break or bowing your head over your sandwich before you ate it. And ever since then, it seems like there's almost been a mission, intentional, to try to discredit you. Or maybe in your company, it was discovered what your values are, and boy, they just kind of rub some people the wrong way. Or maybe you feel you've been a victim of prejudice and bias against you because it's known that you're a Jesus follower. And so people are concerned that maybe your religious beliefs are going to get in the way of fulfilling the company mission. When that happens to you, what are you going to do? What are you going to do when you feel excluded, ostracized, shut out of the in-group, all because of Jesus? How you respond in that moment says a whole lot about you and your maturity. Jesus taught us not to retaliate when there are personal insults. Don't return evil for evil or insult for insult, the scripture says. Peter writes, for you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Get this part now. While being reviled, talking about Jesus, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him. Who? God the Father, who judges righteously. Jesus taught us to let God the Father be our vindicator. Secondly, I want you to see that not only did he endure the abuse of those guards without retaliating, but he endured the, the duplicity of these people in the religious hierarchy. Let's read on. Verse 66 says, at daybreak, the council of the elders of the people both the chief priest and teachers of the law met together, and Jesus was led before them. Now, this group that it's describing was called, in other places, the Sanhedrin. They were the religious muckety-mucks. It was sort of a, a cross between uh, the Supreme Court and senators, if you will. They were the top leaders in the country. They had both political and religious power invested in them. And they didn't like Jesus because they expected that Messiah would be buddies with them. He would kind of hang out with them and be their friend. Of course he would because they're the big muckety-mucks. And they thought surely the Messiah would be born of Wealthy parents, instead of being born to these peasants and placed in a manger, in a stable, my goodness. And so they were threatened, and their bias didn't allow them to see who Jesus really was. So the Sanhedrin successfully conspired to have Jesus arrested to try to silence him. As I mentioned earlier, all these trials that Jesus endured this night were really a sham. They were violating, the Sanhedrin were, was violating their own rules. They weren't allowed to meet at night, for instance, but they did anyway. They did because they didn't want Jesus' followers to find out about it. They knew he was popular among the 
people. But to get around the technicality, they waited until daylight to actually pronounce the sentence. What were they accusing him of? Blasphemy. And according to Leviticus, Leviticus 24, that was worthy of the death penalty. Verse 67 says, if you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man, note that, will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. Now, in that one statement, Jesus is taking two messianic prophecies from the Old Testament, one from Daniel 7, which says he would be called the Son of Man, and the other from Psalm 110, which says he would be seated at the right hand of God, the throne of God, and he puts them together has clear messianic implications. They all ask, are you then the son of God? Now all Jesus had to do was remain silent or just say no, and they'd have to release him. But he replied, you are right in saying I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We have heard it from his own lips. And so they declared him guilty. Now, I want to tell you, as a true follower of Jesus today, you will have to endure some duplicity and hypocrisy from people, even professing religious people. There's a bumper sticker that I see with some regularity around the Capitol District. I know I see it on Hoosick Street all the time near where I live. And the bumper sticker says, God, save me from your followers. You ever seen that bumper sticker? We ought to write a book on bumper sticker theology. God, save me from your followers. Now, that's obviously meant to be a sarcastic cut against Christians, but can I tell you something? The reason that bumper sticker kind of hurts is because, can we be honest? It's partially true. It really is. It's partially true. Christian people will disappoint you all the, along the way. People that you thought were saintly and wonderful, well, you'll discover that, my goodness, they're childish selfish, even narcissistic at times, and you'll be so disappointed. Again, I appeal to you personally, as we're all trying to become more Christ-centered people, what are you going to do when that happens? Can I tell you what most people do that I've watched? They use that now as an excuse to say, ah, they're all just a bunch of phonies. Nothing could be further from the truth. There are many, many very imperfect Christian people, but they are sincerely following Christ. Yeah, they may disappoint you, but can I ask you a question? Why are your eyes on them? Your eyes are supposed to be riveted on Jesus. And if you want to see Christianity at its best, you don't look at Christians. If you want to see Christianity at its best, you need to keep your eyes focused on Jesus Christ. There's where you'll see it in all of its perfection. But his followers, trust me, will always fail in some way. 
because we are broken, sinful people. And so Jesus endured the abuse of these soldiers, the duplicity of the religious hierarchy. But I want you to see one other thing here. Jesus endured the petty mind games of these politicians. I'm starting now in verse 1 of chapter 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. Now, as I mentioned, there were a number of actual different trials that night. But undoubtedly, the best known and most frequently discussed trial is the one before Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman procurator at the time. Now, why Pilate? Why did he have to go before Pilate? Here's why. Because Palestine was ruled by Rome at the time, and Rome had all the real power. The Sanhedrin had limited power. They could do certain things, but they could not enforce the death penalty. So they had Jesus on supposed blasphemy, but Rome wouldn't have cared about that. To the Romans, blasphemy wasn't a big deal. So these leaders want to take him before Pilate to get something on Jesus that would, quote unquote, be worthy of the death penalty, at least to the Romans. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Christ the king. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. If you've been tracking along in this series at all, is that statement true? Does Jesus oppose paying taxes to Caesar? Absolutely not. That is a blatant, bald-faced lie. In fact, just a few days earlier, Jesus had said clearly, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus practiced the payment of taxes that were appropriate, and he taught others to do the same. So they're just flat out lying here. But Pilate is in a bit of a pickle. He already has a suspicious eye from the leaders in Rome because Palestine was a troublesome province, trust me. There was always uprisings and insurrections going on. It was a troublesome place to govern. And so Pilate is kind of afraid of the people, but in a sense, he's also afraid of Jesus. He doesn't really know what to do here. He's in a bind, but he's a professional politician, and he's pretty good at squirming out of situations. Now, we have a number of politicians that are a part of grace. I had a chat with a couple of them several weeks ago, and I'd made a, some political statement in fun, and so they came up, and we were laughing about it and so on, and just having a good-natured uh, chuckle about it, but I thanked them for their service to the community. And I respect the women and men who are willing to go through all the difficulties of being a political leader. Amen? Amen? I hope we could all agree with that. But let's face it, professional politicians get pretty good at squirming out of tough spots. Sometimes they say rather dubious and vague things. They can be very evasive. For instance, sometime back, a former Michigan governor said, I didn't say that I didn't say it. I said that I didn't say that I said it. I want to make that very clear. <laughs> Does anybody know what that means? 
a former politician from Los Angeles said, I'm not sure that I understand your question, but I agree with you. <laughs> really? Former mayor of Washington, D.C. said, outside of the killings, we have the lowest crime rates in the country here. <laughs> now, Pilate is a professional politician, and he wants to find some way to get this monkey off his back. And so he tries a number of things. First, he just tries to dismiss it, just throw it out. <laughs> but wow, he quickly finds that the people want nothing to do with that. They are determined more than he thought. Then he tries referral. He tries to pawn Jesus off on another leader named Herod, verse 6. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. Then he learned that Jesus was under Herod's, when he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. He's thinking, Whew, I'm going to get this case off my docket. I'm going to send him over to Herod. He'll take care of it, and I won't have to have anything to do with it. Now, this Herod is the same one that Jesus had once called that fox. This is the same Herod who two years earlier had had John the Baptist beheaded. He was a ruthless ruler. But he was in Jerusalem now, actually just right next door to where Pilate was, and he was there to observe the Passover. So Pilate says, look, we're going to take him to Herod. When Herod saw Jesus, verse 8, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some <coughs> miracle. How shallow. Herod saw Jesus as some sort of local magician that can do illusions and tricks. And he wanted to see him perform and entertain him. Verse 9 says he plied him with many questions. That means sort of get the picture of him walking around him, just probing with question after question, trying to get Jesus to talk and open up. But Jesus gave him no answer. There's an old saying down in Tennessee where I came from. If you wrestle with a pig in the mud, you'll get muddy, but the pig will love it. And I think the point of that proverb hopefully is clear. Don't get out down in the mud with people. Don't start slinging mud. Don't kind of enter into that kind of talk with people who are this crooked. And so Jesus refused to wrestle with the man. He refused to even answer him. And so Herod retaliated in anger. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. And don't you know, Pilate was exasperated to see Jesus coming back to him. He thought he had successfully pawned him off on Herod. But now he calls the Sanhedrin again. He says, look, I find no fault in him. Herod finds no fault in him. What are you guys thinking? This man is not worthy 
of death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But verse 18 says, with one voice they cried out, away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Now what is that about? You see, during the Passover, it was common for riots to happen among the people. Mob rule was just a common occurrence. There were all kinds of insurrections and trouble during that time. And so, to try to appease the people, to try to placate them, they had made, a rule, they had made this little deal that if there were no uprisings, if there were none, they would release a political prisoner and set him free. And so Pilate gets this ingenious idea. He would let the people choose. Ah, between Jesus and the most despicable criminal he had in his prison, a guy named Barabbas. Verse 19 says, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. So Pilate is thinking, clearly he's thinking, surely they will not want Barabbas released. I mean, my goodness, he's a loser even in the eyes of his own people. Surely they're going to want me to release Jesus and then I'll be off the hook. But he underestimated the hatred in the hearts of some that were stoking the crowd up. And they began to say, crucify him. They began to shout out, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus. Pilate's getting more desperate now. Now he tries reasoning with this mob, wanting to release Jesus. Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why? What crime has this man committed? Wow, you got to give Pilate credit. I mean, he's trying everything he knows here to save his own skin, but also release Jesus. Because as we know from John's gospel, his wife had come to him saying, I've suffered many things this night in a dream because of this Jesus. Don't have anything to do with this just man. And he had learned to trust his wife's intuition. And so he said in verse 22, I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. That was something that was commonly practiced, again, to try to appease a crowd and say, look, we won't do the ultimate punishment of execution, but we will give a severe flogging and then release the person. Now, friends, it's hard for us in our society to imagine the intensity of a Roman flogging. Ken Geyer, in his book, Intense Moments with the Savior, I think describes it as well as I've ever read. The executioner takes the whip and stands six feet behind the prisoner. He works his wrist and nine leather snakes slither over the floor. Then he spreads his legs, positioning his feet for traction. His rippling right arm then snaps them forward. They strike, sinking their fangs into Jesus' ribs. The burly arm jerks back the leather, tearing off pieces of flesh and spattering ogles of blood onto the floor. Another swing and the flailing cords not only wrap themselves around Jesus' back, but around his arms and neck and head. 
tributaries of pain pool in his eyes. Another lash, and the skin on his shoulders opens up, exposing a jagged valley of muscles. Silent tears spill, spill down his face. By the time the flogging is over, the skin on the Savior's back is eaten away. Welted trails of blood map the cruelty on the rest of his body. The two guards who brought him pick him up and take him back to Pilate, but Pilate has been detained with other business. Jesus is brought into the holding area. The area is an expansive hall in the Praetorian where hundreds of men are gathered, military men, men with stubby beards, pockmarked faces, and skin notched with the scars of battle, rough-hewn men, soulless men. A man shoves him to a stool. You're thrown, O king, sit. Then the man hurls expletives in his face and shouts, I said sit down. When Jesus starts to sit, the stool is pulled out from under him and the room erupts in laughter. The soldier extends a hand. Weakly, Jesus reaches for it, but as he does, the soldier balls his other hand into a fist and hits him. Amid the raucous laughter, amid the pools of blood streaming now from his nose, Jesus lies motionless, but only for a moment. Another soldier has taken a strand of thorns from the tinderbox and woven it into a wreath. He's got to have a crown. And he mashes the three-inch thorns into Jesus' scalp. Jesus grimaces as God's curse on Eden comes to curse him back. Hail, King of the Jews! shouts the commanding officer, and the entire cohort kneels. But then the king is pelted with a volley of spit. Then another, and another, until at last he is drenched with their disdain. I know that's hard to hear. But scripture says, that his appearance was marred beyond recognition. Constantine Tischendorf was an eminent scholar of the 19th century. And he reports of some letters that were supposedly written by Pilate that reported an account, an extra-biblical account of Mary, the mother of Jesus, being escorted to Golgotha and looking at the three crosses. And then she said, which one is he? He was beaten beyond recognition. But the Bible, with pretty typical understatement, simply says that Pilate had Jesus scourged. And then he brought him out before the crowd and said, Behold your king. He was hoping, I suppose, that this gruesome sight would evoke some pity, at least, from the bloodthirsty crowd. But these sharks had now tasted blood, and they went crazy. Crucify him. They shouted, why, he said, should I crucify your king? And these people who literally hated Rome said, we have no king but Caesar. And Pilate granted their command and surrendered Jesus to their will. Boy, that's not your typical Christmas message, is it? I know. But I wonder, now as we 
get very personal for a few moments. I wonder what trials you're going through. Is life unfair for you right now? Is a relationship really gone bad? Has your work situation gotten worse? Is there turmoil in your family that just, ah, it's so troubling. Is it that situation with your kids that breaks your heart? Or is it the turmoil with your ex? Is it that you're just struggling to have some kind of hope for the future? Is it family dysfunction? Is life simply unfair? What do you do in those moments? What do you do in those seasons? Well, very quickly as we close, I want to give three quick lessons. I hope you'll remember when life is unfair. Number one, when life is unfair, try to evaluate what's happening. You know, we make some of the worst mistakes ever when we go off in the midst of injustice, of unfair times, and we go off without sitting down and carefully evaluating this. Jesus prayed for hours before these trials. We could use some time alone. And if you're going through a hard time, I urge you, friend, please seek God the Father in prayer. Sit down and evaluate what's going on here. Because I know one thing. Scripture says, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him or her not feel ashamed, but in that name, let them glorify God. I know this. Somehow, God wants you to respond, even in the midst of the injustice, in such a way that he will receive glory. Second lesson is, when life is unfair, don't be surprised at human nature. I, I, I don't understand us sometimes. I, I hear people look, sound shocked when they see humans acting badly. Please hear me. I, I, we ought to understand that as broken, sinful people... We can do awful things. Jeremiah the prophet put it like this. The human heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. It's beyond cure. Who can understand it? So we should not be shocked when broken, depraved sinners act like broken, depraved sinners. Sometimes you grow to expect more, but please remember Please remember that we are capable of unbelievable cruelty and evil left to ourselves. The final lesson is this. When life is unfair, trust God even when you don't fully understand. Now, I would ask you to please, please listen carefully to what I'm about to say. So many people I know, when life is unfair, they begin to question God and blame God. God, I've tried to live a good life. I've tried to be good. I went to church. I took communion. I've tried to do the right thing. I'm not as bad as those people. And then this happens. We start questioning God and even get very angry at God. We start wondering, is God unfair? Is God silent? Is God even listening to me? 
And then you wonder, can I even trust God? Whenever you're tempted to kind of go there, I would simply urge you to think about Jesus in the final hours of his life. He got abuse and mistreatment beyond any of us. And you know what? God didn't come right away and bail him out, did he? The father, who'd spoken numerous times during Jesus' life and ministry on earth, now seems silent. But are you listening to me? God was not being unfair. God was not being silent. God was not hidden. Listen, God was just waiting. God was just, and he allowed Jesus to go through that and even to die so that our own sins could be laid on him and so you and I could go free. It's amazing, isn't it? That if we just look at it from a narrow angle lens, we say, what a tragedy. But if we look at it from a wide angle lens, we say, you know what? God had an amazingly wonderful purpose. Thank God that Jesus went through that for me. Because by his stripes, I am healed. And by his sacrificial atoning death, I am saved. Please remember that if you're hurting this season. Please remember that when you feel like life is unfair. Please, please focus on Jesus when you feel like you've been stabbed in the back and let down. Please rivet your eyes on him. And remind yourself that love so amazing, so divine, demands your life, your soul, your all. Father, this season of Christmas, we want to celebrate the baby in the manger. We want to be festive and joyful. We want to sing joy to the world, and we will. And we will celebrate all the wonder of your incarnation coming to this earth, born of a virgin, laid in a manger. But help us also in the midst of our festive celebration to be reminded at least for a moment or two where it was all to lead. And help us to find joy in that. Help us to have hearts that burst with gratitude for you because of your goodness. Help us to take the wide angle view. In Jesus' name, amen.